This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited to welcome one of my favorite writers to the show, Akweke MZ is the author of Freshwater and the Death of Vivek Oji and Pet for YA, but this new novel of theirs, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, is really kind of trippy and very different from their earlier work. And I'm so excited to talk to them about it today. So, Akwake, can we introduce the new characters and the storyline for this book to listeners? Because it's not necessarily what a lot of folks are expecting. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. I'm very excited to talk about You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, which is my debut in the romance genre. I've been reading romance since I was a teenager. Like at my high school in Nigeria, we used to smuggle the books in because they were banned. And we used to slip all these Harlequin, Mills and Boons novels to each other. I was very excited to jump into romance with these characters. Faye is a young queer woman who's living in Brooklyn, having, you know, a hot girl summer, um, trying to get back into the dating scene after the death of her husband a couple of years back. She has a pretty interesting re-entry into the dating world, I would say, and, you know, ends up on a tropical island where she proceeds to fall for the father of the guy who's, you know, trying to talk to her. Mess ensues. But it's really great, great mess. Maybe not for your characters, but for the reader, it's pretty terrific. So can I ask, though, did you start with Faye? Is she the first character who showed up? The characters kind of all showed up together, and this is going to sound so odd, but I had a dream about them. I have like these like really cinematic dreams, and I woke up from this one, and I was like, this is a fantastic, messy little story. Like, this is a love triangle that I want to read about. I want to, as a reader, as a viewer, I want to see this play out. And the only way I could get it to play out was to, you know, (laughs) write it. The art and the food and the sex, there's a lot happening with your characters. So did you know you were going to start with the visual arts as part of the story? And when I say food, Alim is pretty much a celebrity chef. I mean, food is his life. He thinks about it in ways that those of us who are just feeding ourselves on a Tuesday night don't necessarily think about it. And the sex is a bonus, but wow. So where did you start? I started with the characters, like them as people. I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted avenues for them to be able to express what they were going through. Like Faye is dealing with a lot of grief, even though it's been, what, like five years since her husband died. And I wanted her to have a medium to transmute that grief with. And so I made her a visual artist, which is something I can relate to because Mm -hmm. I make visual art myself. It was like a hop, skip and a tiny jump (laughs) over to her. And I wanted Alan to kind of be like this fantasy guy. And I was like, what would a sexy career be? And I was like, oh, he should be a chef. This is perfect. And then I was like, wonderful. I can give him, I can give him like two Michelin stars. (laughs) And I can give him this, you know, gorgeous house up in the mountains of a tropical island and, you know, make him a celebrity chef who's been on cooking shows. I'm very much addicted to watching cooking shows. Uh They are one of my favorite guilty pleasures that I do not feel guilty about whatsoever. And yeah, and I think it ended up being a really good 
balance. You get to see them engage with each other's arts and you get to see how it adds, I think, like another layer of intimacy to the interaction. There's a wonderful scene where Faye has a commission from someone that she's met on the island. And the way you set this up, you've got a grieving mother who's commissioned this piece of art. You've got Faye who's still grieving her husband five years later. And they're tearing silk chiffon to be used in a work. And it's such a great moment for both characters. But it leads me to think about grief in a different way because as much fun as this book is, and it's a lot of fun, I mean, the house and the food and the art and did I mention the sex? I'm going to mention the sex again. (laughs) All of it, but the grief is always there. And I think the way you write about it is so powerful and beautiful because grief doesn't have a timetable. You don't suddenly wake up and say, oh, I'm done grieving. I think I'll just go pick up the paper or something. It really is something that ebbs and flows. And it does become almost a secret language. Absolutely. Again, it comes back to comes back to that intimacy thing. I think that's something mm-hmm. that I really wanted to kind of delve into. I didn't know at the beginning that the book was going to have that much grief in it because it was meant to be a romance, you know, and it is a romance, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was meant to be like, you know, just fun and a beach read. But then as I kept writing Faye as a character mm-hmm. and trying to find what her connection to Alan was, what would be something that was strong enough to create a foundation for them to pursue love mm-hmm. with such high stakes. There are a lot of consequences to their relationship. And I was like, there has to be something that makes it worth it for them. To get to that, it was like having to do a deep dive into their hearts. That's the way they're connecting. And I wanted it to feel real. You know, I think a lot of people think that sometimes romance has like unrealistic love. And maybe that's the point of the genre is to have that kind of love. But I wanted this to feel real because the characters, you know, felt very real to me and their journeys like towards each other felt real to me as well. I am a romantic. I do Mm -hmm. believe in what I saw a couple of reviews calling it like Insta love, where they're like, oh, you know, you can't really love that person because you don't know them and so on and so forth. But I believe that sometimes... You meet people, and I think that getting to know someone is like an onion, which is so cliche, but you peel off the layers, and then you get to like the core of the person, I guess. But I think that sometimes these like soul connections happen, or people's spirits connect, and it's like their cores connect to each other before they learn all the other superficial stuff. And I think that's no less valid than than getting to meet someone and getting to know them slowly over several years. I think love is work whichever way you put it. And that that soul-spirit connection that Faye and Alan have, where you connect with the essence of the person, and then you move backwards. Then you're like peeling off the layers, but you're working from the inside out and you're finding out all these things. Either way, love is like a process of discovery. And I think the grief was something that lay at their course and it was it was the thing that they connected over and they were able to see each other in a way that not even their nearest and dearest had been able to see them and from there you know they made a choice to give themselves a chance and to 
try this discovery. It's not the kind of insta love where they're like, yeah, and we know everything is going to be perfectly fine. I think they're very cognizant of the fact that this is still work, but they've got so much that they're willing to take a chance on. It struck me too a little bit that Faye is a little older than her technical age. She has an old soul. I think grief does that. She was very young when she lost a husband. You know, they were very much like high school, college sweethearts, like a first and early love. And Mm -hmm. then to lose that, I think, changes someone on a fundamental level. And I think that's where that vibe comes from with her. But it is, as a reader too, really kind of fun to see her emerge. And she's setting her boundaries and her rules for engagement. And it's kind of great. She's like, well, this is what I want. I just want a little bit of fun. And she's very clear that she doesn't need a relationship to feel better. She knows she needs to get back into the world, but she's looking for things for her, not for someone else. And that was a really exciting development, I think, because oftentimes characters aren't necessarily given all of the runway that they need. (laughs) when we're talking about something like this. And it was just so great to see. I mean, she's just a fully formed person. And I know you said that the characters all sort of came to you in a dream and you knew sort of where you were going. But can we talk about the book's title for a second? You made a fool of death with your beauty because I didn't realize this was a lyric from Florence and the Machine. And it's a band I quite like. But can we talk about how this came about? I adore Florence and the Machine, and I really tried to find a shorter title for this Mm -hmm. book. I tried so many titles and none of them worked. And the only one that worked was this one. And I was really nervous about it because writer Twitter says all the time that legally you can't use a lyric of a song for a book title. But then when I sold the book and we just kept moving with it, I was like, well, I guess you can, because I think the publisher's legal team would have flagged that Mm -hmm. if we couldn't. And so I was very relieved and I was glad that, you know, they didn't change it or anything that, you know, they, everyone found a way to like fit it on the cover and, you know, make it look beautiful because it spoke so much to me. It comes from one of the Florence and Machine songs called Hunger. And the full lyric is, oh, and you and all your vibrant youth, how could anything bad ever happen to you? You make a fool of death with your beauty. And for a moment, I forget to worry. And I thought that it was such a perfect title, this idea of in your vibrant youth. And just that I think it's so much of what Faye is trying to do in the book is figure out how to have a vibrant youth again, how to be so alive that you make a fool of death with it. And I think that is like the ultimate comeback to that kind of debilitating grief that she's experienced is learning how to be alive again. And, you know, like you said, she's looking for all these things on her own terms. It's not about, you know, trying to get a relationship. It's not about the guys she's dating. When I talk about the grief, it kind of makes it sound like a heavy book, but it's really not. Like So the book sounds serious when I talk about, you know, the grief and coming out of that. But quite honestly, it's about this queer Black girl and her bestie hoeing it up in Brooklyn. And I really wanted to lean into that 
I didn't think it was going to be a thing until I started like looking through the Goodreads reviews. And I know that, you know, they say authors shouldn't look at them. I only look at them pre-publication because I find it to be like a really useful data source. Mm-hmm. before a book comes out. Goodreads reviews tell me nothing about my work. They tell me a lot about the people reading my work. Mm-hmm. And it tells me what things readers are reacting to that didn't occur to me because I'm not a reader of this particular work mm-hmm. um, because I wrote it. <laughs> and it gives me like a heads up like, oh, okay, people are reacting strongly to this. You might want to touch on that as you're rolling out the book. It just kind of teaches me how to guide the book out into the world, which for me is like a responsibility I take really seriously. And with this book, you know, they got the advanced copies out super early, seven months before publication, I think. And so the book's not out and it already has like 200 reviews on Goodreads. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people react really strongly to one, the profanity I didn't realize how much writing a book that kind of flies in the face of respectability politics was going to kind of set off some readers. Like a lot of people don't like the book because they're like, oh, I don't like how the girls are talking. And there's this subtext there. And I was like, what does that mean when we're talking about like two queer black women who are very much like in charge of their sexuality? Like you said, you know, Faye's doing all of this not to try and get a relationship, not to try and get a guy. Like the men are not even the point of it. She's trying to find something in herself about how to be alive again, how to be present in her body again, how to reckon with desire again. And the way she's doing that is by having a hot girl summer. (laughs) For me, I think, you know, people tend to dismiss women who are in charge of their sexuality and to kind of deny them any like underlying complexity. Like some people find Faye as a character like, oh, navel gazing or like she irritates a lot of people. I find those reactions fascinating because, again, I think it speaks more to the reader, to the places people are coming from. For me, I was like, I want to write these girls having fun. You know, I want her to be courted. I want her to be flown out have this very young, very slightly reckless experience because that's how she's finding her way back you know, mm-hmm. to being alive again. That's how she's finding her way out of the grief while still recognizing that it's always going to cling to her in a sense. And I think that's what makes her real. She's got a little romance cutout. She's a very real woman who is figuring shit out like the rest of us. And on her own terms. And I know I keep coming back to this, but you have in some ways subverted the idea of what romance looks like on the page. And it's really exciting to see. How so? Like, is it the part about her being on her own terms? I'm curious about this because I'm like, I read a lot of romance. And when I wrote this, I was trying very hard to write a traditional romance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then people had like such polarized like reactions to it. And I had to call one of my writer friends. And I was like, I thought that I wrote a very simple, straightforward romance. And she laughed at me. Um, (laughs) She was like, look, you can try to write that all you want, but you always write complex characters. And complex characters are always going to be polarizing. So yeah, she's like, this is what you ended up with. And I think your friend's right. I think there's so many layers to these characters. They're so imperfect, and yet they're really fun to read. And I think maybe it's partially because I might not make some of those same choices, but I mean, I was in. I was in from the first page (laughs) of this book. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I don't have the experience of Harlequin or Boons and Mills the way you guys did at school, passing stuff around like that, but 
I wouldn't mind spending some time at Aleem's house. I mean, that sounds pretty great. Good. The way you I would love it, to right? be at that house. <laughs> you know, when I was writing it, I had to research architecture because yeah. I'm very much of the belief that if I'm writing work and mm. there's art in the work, whether yeah. it's, you know, the architecture of a house or the food that Alim cooks or the art that Faye makes, one of my mm-hmm. pet peeves, whether it's in books or movies, happens more so in movies, mm-hmm. is watching something where a character is an artist and then watching their art be crap. Yeah. And then watching everyone in the movie or in the book or whatever, you know, act like, oh, this is so great. And I'm just there like, no, this sucks. So I felt this really strong responsibility to make sure that all the art that was in my book is art that could stand alone even if it wasn't in the book. Like if you walked into an actual gallery today mm-hmm. and you saw Faye's work or you heard her talking about a work, that it would be strong enough to you know, hold up to that. Or if you went to Alim's restaurant or went to a seven course dinner that he does, the courses would measure up to it. And for his food, I had initially written it myself just based off notes I had taken off cooking shows. But then I was like, I need this to actually stand up to professional chef standards so I commissioned a chef who rewrote the entire menu customized it to Alam and customized it to you know who he is as a Caribbean man as a queer Caribbean man the chef gave me like a special menu and then I wrote that back into the book and it came with you know this is what it would smell like because it's a very sensory experience it's like this is what the air would smell like this is what this is what the colors would look like and same with Alan's house I well I didn't commission someone for that but I Mm -hmm. had to redo a lot of research because I was like I do interior design as Uh a hobby and in this case I was like oh I have to design a house that is actually not to my personal taste. I wouldn't design a house like that. But I was like, it's not for me. It's for Alan. I had the vision of it in my head mm-hmm. and I had to find out what it was actually called. It turns out that style of architecture is called tropical modern. And then I had to like walk pieces of furniture, his dining room, like what the chairs look like, what the table looked like. A lot of research went into this book because I wanted it to feel as real on the page as it does in my head and also because I wanted it to be a world that we want to spend time in like I want to hang out in Alan's house I want to be part of that dinner it sounds amazing all of the research paid off this brings me to your work though because you're also a visual artist I've alluded to an earlier scene with Faye where she's making art and she's brought in the person who's done the commission with her there's a great moment where you're describing the installation piece that she creates for this group show which I'm not going to spoil because it is such a fantastic image but how does your visual art influence your writing and how does your writing influence your visual art and who are some of your inspirations can we talk about that piece of your life for sure. So I actually started making visual arts way before I started writing. I started painting when I was in college and I moved to New York in 2010. I was painting then as well, but I put it aside for the writing. I put a lot of things aside for the writing, actually. So I paint, I make video art. The painting, I kind of stopped. But the video art, I continued making that. At the time, I initially started making video art because I was making short films. I wanted my writing to be seen on the screen. Because every time I write, I see it in my head first. Like, it plays out. I'm one of those people, I don't have an internal monologue. Mm -hmm. I just see images. 
So every time I write a story, it's already a movie in my head. And then I have to transcribe it to the page. And I was like, you know what? I really want people to be able to see the movie in my head. So let me move backwards again and put it on screen. And then I found out that directing narrative film was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'd rather just stick to the stories. But I started making experimental film. Um, I won an award at the Black Star Film Festival back Mm -hmm, in 2014 mm -hmm. for like the best short experimental. I was really making video arts and pursuing my writing at the same time. The problem with making video art, though, is that the intellectual property is far less protected. Mm -hmm. So people would plagiarize my shots. Um, People around the world would screen my work without my permission and, you know, charge people to see it. And it was so stressful to constantly be on social media trying to protect my work by calling out white filmmakers who were stealing my shots white festival organizers because it was mostly white people doing it mm-hmm. who were screening my work without my permission and it was just exhausting because when you're like starting off no one really knows who you are no one's really willing to like stick up for you you have no resources I'm like I can't sue anyone I can't afford a lawyer and I stepped back and I was like is this what my visual art or my video art career is going to be is constantly trying to stop people from stealing my work and that doesn't happen with books because Mm -hmm. you have to deal with publishers I was like I'm going to step back from this a little bit I'm going to focus on the books because those are more protected and then when I have enough money to actually protect my visual arts protect the video work then I'll be able to step back into it but I've still continued making work I was commissioned in 2020 by the Wexner Center Mm -hmm. to create a piece of video art and that was the first time I started working with blood in my own art and it quickly became you know my absolute favorite medium to use so much of my work in my video art in even in my books like Freshwater, The Ascender and The Memoir it's a, a lot of it is about indigenous ontologies a lot of it is about it's like deeply religious not in mm-hmm. a sense of like oh I subscribe to a particular religion but just in terms of rituals and believing in a higher power and being a child of a deity and all these things and Blood is a medium that really lets me dig into that. So you see it very much in Fool of Death because Faye works with blood as well, but she works with it for different reasons than I do. And that was the way I was kind of able to get into her mind and make her art is, well, you know, if if I was her, what would I make? And yeah, that's how I came up with that. Now that I've kind of established myself with books, I am looking forward to getting back into visual arts, both video and objects made with blood, which freaks out people a little bit because, you know, it's it's a lot of blood. The video that the Wexner Center commissioned me for involves me literally like drenching myself in blood. And it always has to be real blood, mm-hmm. not like prop blood. Whenever I'm making art like that, I'm not reenacting a ritual. I'm actually mm-hmm. performing a ritual. So it isn't an imitation, it's the actual thing. Wait, does this mean you actually physically created some of Fai's art then? Or did you just map it out in your head and know what it looked like in your head? I mapped it out in my head. I've made visual art with blood the way mm-hmm. that Fei does, but not mm-hmm. the, the specific pieces that Faye has made. I do really like her installation piece. Yeah, and it's really it is good. something <laughs> that I do want to actually make in real life because I was divorced in my early 20s 
And the rings were something that I kept as well, like mm-hmm. gold rings that were like family heirlooms. So much of what I do is a self-portrait in some ways. And so there's a lot of me in Faye. The art is definitely one of those things. Who are some of the artists who are in the visual artists who are influencing your work now? Uh, just on the page. I mean, since you've sort of stepped back from your own visual art. I'm still making visual arts. I'm just not showing uh, it. Got it. When people know you as an author first and you spent like years kind of carving a place in that industry, it's a little difficult, I think, to like break into another industry because everyone's like, oh, well, but you make books. That's your thing. Mm. And I'm like, I do a lot of things. <laughs> I just need to take some time and carve out, you know, into that world as well. Some of my favorite artists are artists that are mentioned in Fool of Death. They're part of Alan's collection. Mm-hmm. So Ruby Oyechi Amanze, who makes these enormous, wonderful drawings. She did the cover art for my first book, Freshwater. Mm-hmm. And then for my memoir, Dear Senderan, we used her art again, but it wasn't custom for the book. It was a piece of art that she'd made in 2016. But my face is in it because that's actually how Ruby and I became friends is that she reached out to me on Instagram and she was like, hey, I would like to make you a ghost in one of my drawings. And I was like, absolutely. This is right up my alley. By all means, turn my face into a ghost. She was working off a photograph from, interestingly, it was a photograph I had taken after I had shot one of my video art pieces in Trinidad. So I made the piece. Um, I had like shaved up my eyebrows for it to turn my face into a mask. It was a whole video art was about how you can turn your face into a mask and Mm -hmm. the spiritual significance of masks. I have a whole thing with masks. There's a whole like letter in the memoir about it as well. But I made my art. She turned my face from my art into work in her art. And then we use that as the cover for the memoir. So really our art has been overlapping for many years in, you know, these these really intertwined ways. Um, and so Alan has her work in the collection. He has one of my other favorite artists, um, Alison Janae Hamilton, who makes these wonderful like fencing masks and a lot of work around, you know, the environment and the South. And some of my favorite artists make cameos in the mm-hmm. book. And like the group exhibition opening, Catherine Ajima Agard, who's an artist I collect as well, Charmaine B. Um, I tend to put the artists I love into my work because I think, you know, it immortalizes us all together. And, and you're like, okay, well, these are the minds that I'm thinking with at this point in life. I think that's one of my favorite things about like artist communities. You know, you read like Maya Angelou's memoirs and you see all the artists that she was in commu- mm-hmm. like in community with, in conversation with. And I tend to put that in my works. 30 years from now, whatever, people look back and be like, oh, okay, the, you know, these were your people. I think that's really important. And also you're working on the screen adaptations for You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty and Freshwater. They're different networks, but... At the same time, you may have already answered this too, because you said stories are always playing as movies in your head before you put them down on the page. But what's that like? So you've taken your original images, you've put them on paper, and now you've got to adapt them to a new art, but one that's visually driven. Yeah, you know, I tend to take a step back a little bit because I always say, and I tell this to everyone I work with in film and TV, because so far I only work on 
adaptations of my work. And I think people caution us about authors working on their own adaptations because there's a concern that the author is not going to be flexible and that they're going to, you know, want it to fit into their very, very specific image of how they wrote it. I don't feel like that at all because the perfect version that I wanted already exists in the book. It doesn't need to exist twice. The whole point of moving into a different medium is to move into a different medium, is mm-hmm. to allow the space for it to be different because it's not the same thing. I think of it kind of as like like translations. Like mm-hmm. my work's been translated a lot. I think, you know, Freshwater Vivek are translated into like 13, 14 languages. I have no idea how those turned out because I don't speak those languages. <laughs> I didn't make those alone. Someone else got involved, like someone else translated it. And at that point, it's a collaboration. So the minute you're collaborating with somebody else, it's immediately going to be different from if you made it on your own. And I'm perfectly happy to collaborate and to let the work morph into this new form because I already made my version. So I'm good. (laughs) No matter what happens, no matter how it ends up on screen, I'm like, the book is always there. If anyone's like, well, I wonder what this would have been like if a Quakey did it themselves. I'm like, great, read the book. You'll know. That allows me to step into adaptations with a lot more ease and a lot more openness. There are certain things that I'll set boundaries around from the beginning and be like, oh, this is a deal breaker. You know, like all my characters are Black Mm -hmm. and in Pool of Death. And like the both the characters are queer, that cannot be changed. Both of them are dark skinned, that cannot be changed. Like just these very like essential things. Everything else, I'm just like, go for it. Because most of the time, you know, the people who are adapting it, they're adapting it because they liked the original story. They're not trying to change it into something drastically different. And yeah, as long as I get the things that I'm firm on, I'm good. Especially for Alan mm-hmm. with the movie adaptation, I was like, He has to stay queer because you never get to see Black bisexual men as protagonists in romances. Mm -hmm. There's so much stigma against them. And I was like, it's really important that he's not like, you know, turned into this straight guy who just so happens to be dating this bisexual girl. I'm like, no, they're both bisexual and it's going to stay that way. Once those things are protected, there's a lot more room to play because it's meant to be fun. You know, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. like... Let's play. Let's see what we come up with. And they are great characters. They're really, really great characters. You've been reading and writing since you were five. I mean, this has always been your thing. Can we talk about some of your literary influences for a second? Because I know you're a fan of N.K. Jemisin, and I know you're a fan of Terry Pratchett. And their work is slightly different from what you do. But the world building, I mean, you can argue that you've made an incredible world in the new book. You made a fool of death with your beauty. So the skill set is not entirely different, if you think about it, right? Like you've had to create this world full of art and food and complexity. But who are some of the other writers who influence your work? The reason why I love N.K. Jemison and like Terry Pratchett, for example, and Terry Pratchett is a special case because I really wish so many of my favorite speculative fiction writers would do what he did, which is give me 40, 70, I'm not entirely Mm -hmm. sure, but give me a ridiculous number of books sets in the same universe. It's one of my favorite things. I love huge series because you just get to immerse yourself in the world. I actually love speculative fiction more than 
any other genre. The only reason why I started writing literary fiction was because at the start of my career, I looked around and I was like, oh, if I start writing speculative fiction the way I want to, I will never get out of that box. Mm. I will never be allowed out of that box. I will just be known as like a speculative fiction writer. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's too late for us to test it out. Um, so I was like, I'm going to start in quote unquote mainstream fiction. And then that's going to give me room to branch out. And so that's why I started writing literary fiction, even though speculative fiction is like my one true love. I'm still getting around to it. Like I actually have a six book fantasy series that I started writing when I was 14. And I keep meaning to get around to it. It's just that all these other books keep just popping up so like I started writing YA because I was broke actually and someone offered me a YA deal and I said fine um I started writing YA and then the memoir showed up and I was like you have to write me right now like all these other urgent books mm -hmm. came up and then I wrote Fool of Debt because that was the first book that I wrote for fun I was like I'm tired of writing serious stuff <laughs> I just want to have fun like I want to write a book that makes me happy to write it it makes me happy to read it it's just a delight all around and I did that and now in the wake of that, like three more romance novels are popping up in my head. And I'm like, please, I'm just trying to get to my fantasy novel. Can you guys get out of the way? So eventually I will turn to fantasy because that's actually one of the genres that I'm, I haven't published it in it yet, but it's why I'm strong in world building because I'm secretly a fantasy writer who just hasn't gotten around to writing fantasy yet. So a lot of my favorite writers also write, you know, speculative fiction. Zen Cho, who's this phenomenal Malaysian writer. And I love her work because my mother's Malaysian. So I would read her work and I'm like, this sounds like, you know, the entirety of my mother's family. You know, this mm -hmm. is how they talk. It felt like coming home in a sense. I was just like, yes, it's my other home. And Neon Yang, who writes amazing, amazing gender fluid characters. The list is very long. With romance, I adore Alyssa Cole, Talia Hibbert. Talia Hibbert's books made me so happy. I'm like, please write a gazillion more. I would be so pleased. And then in literary fiction, it was like Toni Morrison, Helen Oyeyemi, mostly because their work kind of gave me permission to write mine. I'd be like, mm -hmm, okay, you know, mm -hmm. you can write really lush, really weird books and it'll be okay. You don't have to kind of do that MFA thing of, you know, writing a sentence as clean as a bone and writing something that's really stark. Like, it's not my style. And, and I think reading their books let me know that I had permission to write something else. There are a lot of amazing influences, but I'm very excited about this six book fantasy series. <laughs> so am I. I'm like trying to get time to write it. So I'm like, I'm not publishing next year because I was, I had two books scheduled for next year. And I was like, that's nine books in five years. The readers cannot keep up with this. So I was like, take a break, catch up on the books that you're writing and then get back to publishing. Well, and you wrote four books in four years. I mean, you're saying nine books in five years, but you wrote four of those in four years, which is not a small thing. Yeah, 2020 was a very productive year. Mm -hmm. I wrote Bitter, I wrote Fool of Death, and I wrote The Poetry Collection, which are all the books that I'm releasing this spring. Publishing three books in four months has been a roller coaster ride, I'll tell you that much. 
And three very different books. <laughs> three yes, that's the fun part now. It's like books. I get to play in all these genres and I get to have wildly different conversations and it, it feels the Gemini in me. Well, that's good to know. So the poetry collection is Content Warning Everything. That's out from Copper Canyon. Bitter is your second YA novel and that's just out as well. And of course, we've been talking about You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, which is such a fantastic title. Akwake Emzi, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We're really, really excited for readers to get their hands on the new book. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute delight. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop into Barnes & Noble for your copy of You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akwake Emzi. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm happy to welcome back my book buddy, Margie. Hi, Margie. I missed you last week. Oh, it's so good to be back, although it was really super good to be in northern Michigan this past weekend. Yeah, whereabouts were you staying? Oh, it's way up there north of Traverse City. It's right mm-hmm. on the bay. It, it was like 80 degrees. It was amazing. Perfect. 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 Mm-hmm. I'm ass- I'm assuming you did all kinds of fun reading. Oh, I certainly did. Yeah, and nice. I have a couple really good ones for, to recommend for this one. Fantastic. Um, you want to go ahead and so jump I'm just right gonna, in? I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm going to swing right into it. I couldn't think of complicated relationships in early adulthood without immediately thinking Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Uh, mm-hmm. yep. So college student Francis and her best friend and ex-girlfriend Bobby perform as a spoken word duo. And after a show in Dublin, they meet Nick and Melissa, a married couple about a decade older than them. So still in their late 20s, early 30s. Melissa is a photographer and they are both big fans of her. So they're super geeked to meet her. And they are thrilled at her suggestion to do a photo shoot and a story for a local magazine. At first, Francis is a bit peeved that as they all start seeing more of each other. Bobby is obviously the focus of Melissa's interest, leaving Francis to make harmless chit-chat with Nick, a struggling actor. But that chit-chat turns to flirtation, then turns into something more. What follows is a real tutorial on the messiness of human relationships. Amongst these four, Though it's all told through Francis's words, we experience many forms of infatuation, infidelity, compromise, betrayal, tenderness, apathy, pain, longing, satisfaction. And the entire time, there's no one to necessarily root for. This isn't a story that's black and white or right or wrong. These are complicated people living complicated lives that are all sharing this messy reality. I guarantee there will be moments you commiserate with someone so strongly and other times you wish that person was real so you could reach in and give them a swift slap. (laughs) So this one really shines a light on that universal human experience of entering adulthood with overblown confidence before realizing you do not have it all figured out. And that is Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. A fantastic pick. And I want everybody to read the book before they watch the Hulu miniseries, which I have Always not started yet. Always read the book yet. first. Always read the book first. It is the best. I have one I want to talk about that is kind of in the, also in the vein of potentially messy 
relationships, but more a coming of age and somebody really finding their place in the world. And it is a book called Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami. This is an aching coming of age story. It's built from just two lines of the Beatles song by the same name. The line is, I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me? So readers follow Toru. He's a young man who is living in Japan, haunted by his best friend's recent suicide. He moves to Tokyo to gain some distance from the tragedy and runs into his best friend's girlfriend. And what follows is this winding path of blossoming love and coming to terms with one's place in the world. It's also about how grief can provide the soil for self-discovery and for human connection in all its messy and beautiful ways. This is one of my favorite of Murakami's books that I've read. He's got an incredibly large body of work. Having this sort of crazy writing style, very dreamlike, very challenging to read. But I would say that Norwegian Wood is probably the best entry point book for anybody curious about diving into this insanely wonderful author. I really recommend it. It's a gorgeous love story, but really it's just a story about figuring out who you are and how you fit into this insane world. And that is Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami. I'm for my deep, dark secret that I have mm-hmm. never read Murakami ever. It's terrible. That, that is terrible. <laughs> you are the worst. But there is redemption at the end of this long, dark, sad tunnel that you're in. <laughs> Absolutely. That one is, that one's just for me, that suggestion. Yes. Well, my other recommendation is also about finding yourself, finding yourself in a family you never meant to have. And that one is Early Morning Riser by Katherine Heine. She is a native Michigander. Whoop, whoop. Yay. Uh, and in this story, Jane at 26 moves to Boyne City, Michigan to become a second grade teacher. And almost immediately, She locks herself out of her house in her pajamas. And that's how she meets Duncan, a real hunk of a locksmith who manages to get in through a window and so he doesn't charge her. Charmed by this, Jane invites Duncan to dinner where they connect in conversation and in the bedroom. It's not long, though, before Jane is warned that Duncan has had this connection with tons of women in Boyne City and the surrounding area, which means Jane runs into Duncan's exes everywhere, and it appears every citizen has an opinion they wish to share about her relationship. Duncan also employs a man in his late 30s named Jimmy, who's developmental difficulties the locals describe as slow learning. Jimmy isn't much for boundaries, and Jane finds his habit of wandering in and out of Duncan's abode a little jarring. And so she finds herself asking, is a life with Duncan what she really wants? And just when you think the answer is no, a calamity that shakes the whole community changes her life forever. And over the course of the next 10 years, we see Jane continue to struggle with this question and nosy neighbors and an ever-present ex-wife and the joy and chaos of a second grade classroom. This is a utterly charming exploration of what it means to be happy and what makes a family. And that is Early Morning Riser by Katherine Heine. Oh, that sounds delightful and mm-hmm. heartfelt. I appreciate that very much. Well, I think we've got a handful of fantastic books when people come in to buy a Kwekwe's new book. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Port Over. 
please subscribe so you never miss an episode and follow us at Barnes and Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my fantastic home store at BN Westchester or peek at my Instagram at bookmark79. And I am Margie. I'd love it if you followed my store at BN Northville. And you can find me on Instagram at Margie Book Brain. Thank you, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.